Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful cross. Lord, what a great reminder that is that the instrument of suffering and the instrument of death is wonderful to us. For upon it our Savior died, and upon it our Savior shedding his blood on our behalf that our sins might be paid. Despising the scorn, the shame, and the suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ had his joy set before him, knowing the price to pay for our sin. Lord, we thank you for giving us that opportunity to be saved, calling us to yourself that we might be one church, one body gathered, one bride of Christ, awaiting the day he returns. Lord, as we look to your word today and see the words of Jesus, we ask that through the Holy Spirit that these would not be words to us on a page, but these would be living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that they would be our life, our all, or that they would sustain and feed us as food does. We ask that you would give direction to the Holy Spirit and into our lives. Lord, may we not walk away unchanged by your word. May you use it to divide our hearts from our actions, our pride from our anger. Lord, we ask that you would use your word to separate out and excise the sin out of our lives. That we would be people who are made whole in Christ that our lives would reflect the righteousness imputed to us through Christ. Lord, we know that we are unworthy of what you've called us to. Through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Lord, you've called us to righteousness that we cannot attain on our own. Lord, we are sinful people before a holy God. Lord, we ask that you not see our sin. You forgive us of our sin. You remove it from our lives, that our lives may be washed clean. That as much as possible, our lives on earth would be pure before you. That we'd present to you holy bodies, a holy church, a people desirous to be pure before you, to love you as you've commanded, to love others as you've commanded. Lord, what an awesome task that you've set before us, one to which we know that we are unable and unwilling and unworthy of the calling. So Lord, through your spirit, we ask that you would make those things possible for us, that we would seek you and your righteousness, that our lives would be marked by your hand upon it. Lord, as the small dash that separates the year of our birth from the year of our death, Lord, we ask that that dash would be full of good works, good love, a life lived well for you. And may they not remember us for our accomplishments. May they not remember us for the things that happened outside of you, but the things that we did for you, our love for you, our love for others. Lord, may we live that dash well. And Lord, when you call us home, when our days are spent and our dash is over, we ask, Lord, that we can look back on our lives, that we would look back without regret, that we'd look back and be able to say, I did this for you. 
Lord, we ask that you would look on us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, it's the desire of our hearts that as we come before you, that our lives would be molded to that of Christ. Lord, there is nothing good in us apart from what you have given us. There is no hope apart from you. There is no joy apart from you. The happiness and the pleasures of life are fleeting. They lead us to ruin. And Lord, you promise a better way. May we walk in your ways. May we keep step with the Spirit. May we obey your instruction that gives life. Lord, may we know that we don't ask as the psalmist, whom do I have in heaven? But we know it is whom do I have in heaven but you. Lord, you demand our life. You demand our all. Lord, may we be a people who give it freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Last week, Jesus left us with a bit of a cliffhanger. He said in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. We have the benefit of looking back over the whole of the New Testament as Jesus was speaking these words that your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, the people that heard him wanted to know how. How can my righteousness, a regular person, surpass that of the Pharisees, the people who have dedicated their lives to outward righteousness? How can my life be better than theirs? There is no righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. They have lived the outwardly perfect as much as humanly possible life. So how are we supposed to live better lives than the Pharisees? That's what the people would have wanted to know. The answer is, you can't. There is no righteousness. There's no amount. There's no amount of good works or righteous living by which one might enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, unless it surpasses the Pharisees. And it won't, and that's what Jesus uses to lead into the next six sections. In this section that we're going to read today, we're going to see that not only are we responsible for our actions, but we're also responsible for what happens in our heart. We're also responsible for what comes out of our mouth. Jesus wants more than obedience on the outside. He wants obedience within our hearts that overflows into our words and actions. The Pharisees were able to control so much of their outward actions, but their hearts were stained and corrupted by sin. It's what's in the heart that produces the action. And Jesus is taking this principle and driving it home, saying it's not about your actions, it's about sin in the heart. And using the metaphor of anger, sin and anger start in the heart. 
Let's read the passage. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you are on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Well, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. This verse doesn't take a skilled expositor. It doesn't take a lot of knowledge. What it says is what it means, and what it means is what it says. Do not murder. The law said don't murder, so don't murder. There are some sins that have long-lasting consequences. Murder is one of them. So don't do it, or else you'll be subject to judgment. That's verse 21. Verse 22. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Taking that first sentence, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In the Old Testament, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. They spoke the words of God to the people. In the New Testament, the New Testament writers looked back and they would say, this is what the Lord has said to us. The New Testament writers said, it is written. You've heard it said, reflecting back to the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord, it is written. And now Jesus comes and messes everything up. And Jesus says, but I tell you. The prophets quoted God's word. The New Testament writers quoted the prophets who were quoting God's words. And Jesus comes and says, but I'm telling you. Jesus is saying, yes, the Mosaic law says one thing, but listen to this. And he takes the Mosaic law, do not murder, and he says, it's not just about murder. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister, not just those who murder. Murder is obviously sin. But the intentions and the heart, Jesus says, is what I'm telling you. We're quick to be angry. We're quick to be offended. We're quick to be hurt when someone sins against us. We're quick to pride. We're quick to our own sin. But we're slow to be angry at sin. We're slow to be angry at injustice. We're slow to be angry 
with our own sin. We're slow to be angry when something doesn't affect us directly. Jesus is our model here of what it means to be right and righteous with his anger. Peter says this, For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And here's the example. He, Jesus, did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. When offended, when attacked, when injustice happened to him personally, Jesus trusted himself and trusted that God, who judges justly, would handle the situation. When attacked personally, Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father. When attacked personally, we likewise can entrust ourselves to God the Father. Paul adds to this and says, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Our attitude and instinct is to be attacked, have someone sin against us, and then lash out in retribution. We want to take vengeance. We want equality. We want that person to suffer in the way that we suffered. So think of your enemy. Think of a person who despises you. Think of someone who hates you. Maybe think of someone that you despise and that you struggle to love. That person, Paul says, your enemy, your adversary, care for their needs. Give them something to eat when they're hungry. Give them something to drink when they're thirsty. Don't take matters into your own hands, but leave room for God to act. That's to your enemies. We want to do that for people we like. We like people that we like and that like us. And so we would give to them. We would care for them. But this is for your enemies. There's a time and a place for right and righteous anger. The time and the place for right and righteous anger is at sin. The time and the place for right and righteous anger is at the sin and not the sinner. Sin and evil and wickedness will be inflicted upon us and it'll be inflicted upon the world. It's been that way for thousands of years and it will be that way until Christ returns. And so, if we are to be angry, we are to be angry at injustice. We are to be angry at sins such as elder abuse. We are to be angry at sins that involve the mentally handicapped. We're to be angry at sins such as human trafficking. If you want to be angry with something, be angry with pedophilia. 
Be angry when people take advantage of other people. Be angry with the sin. And in your sin, do not commit sin. In your anger, do not sin. Be angry with the sins that are unjust. Be angry with the things that shouldn't be. And in our anger, do not sin. If our anger is directed at the sin, we're honoring God's command to love him and to love others. Our anger at the sin and not at the sinner shows what we believe about God. Because it's even hard to say that the most despicable people God can save. And so who am I to lash out in anger against someone that the Lord can save? But let me be angry at the sin that takes place. To fulfill God's two greatest commands, as Jesus called them, to love God and to love others. By being angry at things that God is angry at, sin, we love God. And yet by loving the sinner, we fulfill the second commandment, to love others. A man named John Trapp said, he that will be angry and not sin must not be angry but for sin. If we are to be angry and not sin in our anger, our anger needs to be directed only at the sin. Well, this week I was talking to someone about baking bread and how that kind of correlated with anger and anger in our hearts and anger in our hands. And we were talking about metaphors for anger. And I had this, what I thought was a really good metaphor for anger. And so I was telling my wife and I was telling her like how I had kind of had this like picture of like spaghetti noodles being like squeezed out through like a spaghetti thing. I don't even know what it's called. And it was like, well, this is like, you know, anger in your hands, like what you're doing, this like anger in your heart. And she kind of was like, isn't it more like this? Isn't, isn't anger more like baking bread? And I was like, yeah. And then she like went on and I was like, yeah, keep going. Pulled out a pencil. I'm like, keep going. And my wife is a, a walking metaphor. She not only like sees these things and knows these things, but she's just a wonderful woman. She's a, she's a picture of, oh, since you're going to clap. <laughs> she does not like that, though. <laughs> she does not like this right now. But she's wonderful. She helps me. She fills in my gaps, and she gives me these great metaphors like bread. So anyways, Faith and I yesterday, my, my daughter Faith and I were baking bread. And to bake bread, if you're a novice like I am, you need ingredients, flour, sugar, yeast, salt. And in the past, I've made bread, and you add them all together, and then you do other stuff and hope for the best. <laughs> you laugh because you know that's not how you're supposed to make bread. I learned that the hard way. Now I use a recipe, and I'm like, salt? Okay, so we added the salt, we added the yeast, we added the sugar. As you add those things in, if your yeast is alive, as it should be, it starts to consume and eat 
the sugar. The yeast eats the sugar, and then it puts off bubbles, and you can kind of see the bubbles. If there are bubbles, you move on to step two. If there are no bubbles, something has gone wrong, and just throw it out and start over. So we had bubbles, and we were able to do it. Put into the right environment, our angry thoughts, the things that have not come out of our mouth, they have not come out in actions, but our angry thoughts start to be consumed by our anger and by our frustration. The thing that someone has done or the thing that someone has said starts to bubble and be consumed. We start to think about and go over the situation again and again in our minds. That's a sign that anger is alive and working in our lives. To then make the bread, you start to mix in the flour. Once you get the flour all mixed in, you don't need to write this down. You can find it on the internet. You start to mix in all the flour, and then you knead the bread. Kneading the bread is like rolling it and like folding it and stuff like that. So you just kind of like keep working it, and you're expanding the strains of gluten, from what I understand. The bread gets stronger, and the bread gets thicker, and that makes the bread what the bread is. And in our anger, we start to add ingredients. We start to work our anger. We start to knead our anger. We start to remember things. I could have said, I remember how they're wrong. I remember what they did. And we start to knead our anger. And we start to strengthen the anger that we feel. As we knead and strengthen the anger, we start to make it bigger and it starts to grow. Let's look back at verse 22. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Now, it's not as obvious in English, but Jesus' hearers would have seen an escalation here. They would have seen an escalation in both the response in the anger and also an escalation in what would happen to the person. The first punishment is they would be taken to court. Verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. After that, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. That's the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. And the third one, whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. That's Gehenna, a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem that they burned trash and it was a big dump. It's another word for hell because it was such a horrible place that nobody wanted to be. So the punishment here is intensifying and increasing. And also the anger is intensifying. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister, that's an anger that hasn't yet come out. They're just angry in their hearts. Whoever insults his brother or sister, the word there is raka. It means to be empty-headed. It's an intellectual insult saying, you've got nothing going on up here. You're an idiot. You're dumb. You're foolish because there's nothing going on in your head. You're empty-headed is literally what it means. The third one, whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. 
This is the word moros in Greek, where we get the word moron, but moron really does not do justice to what the Greek and Jewish people would have understood this word to mean. In Greek mythology, you know, they have all the deities and the families and the Zeus and all those people. And in Greek mythology, moros is a deity and he is doom. Doom is the name for moros and it means a negative fate, like something bad is going to happen to you. And doom, moros in Greek mythology, was born to two parents, night and darkness. So his parents were named night and darkness, and his grandfather was chaos. So you kind of see his family tree. His grandfather was chaos. His mother and father were night and darkness, and he is called doom, or impending doom, some people say. The family tree gets worse. He has a bunch of siblings, this moros, including normal death, Violent death, retribution, deceit, manslaughter, hardship, starvation, and anarchy. Those are just some of his siblings. And so when someone would have called someone else moros, they're bringing this picture of you are such an idiot that impending doom is coming on you. The brother of violent death and retribution and all of these other negative things. And so moron is fairly light when you're calling someone this Greek deity. So what they would have heard was an insult that borders on violence. There's really not much more someone could say as an insult that doesn't then go toward the next step of violence. So Jesus starts with internal anger and then an insult and then this insult of rage. This insult of rage, it sits and it broods and it thinks and it stews and it remembers and it goes back over all of these things in its mind. Just thinking and remembering all these angers increases the blood pressure, it makes your face red and you get angry all over again. And that's what Jesus is saying. Whoever in verse 22 says, you fool will be subject to hellfire. And look at the escalation. The same heart that Jesus said, who is angry. The same heart who says to someone, Raka, you empty-headed fool. The same person, the same heart, then says, Moros, you impending doom. And it's the same heart that physically attacks someone in a fit of rage, and it's the same heart that murders. The same heart that is angry on the inside is the same heart that leads to murder. What Jesus is saying here is these attitudes, they escalate, and they grow, and they get out of control. The words themselves are not a problem. You can go home and whisper raka, and you can whisper moros, and you can whisper you fool, and not be subject to hellfire, not be subject to the court. The problem is, out of the heart is where the mouth speaks. Out of the heart is where the hands act. And if the heart is angry, the mouth speaks in anger. The hands act in anger. Anger starts in the heart. So Jesus says, do not murder, do not insult, do not hate in your heart. 
Because your heart can be wicked, your heart can sin without an external action ever being done. So how does my righteousness surpass the Pharisees who were great on the outside? It's not about the outside. Sin starts in the heart. That's what you get from reading the text. Another reason why this matters, though, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God made man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. Every person has been created in God's image. From the oldest to the youngest, they've all been created in God's image. And so when we look at someone and we yell an insult at them, when we hate that person created in God's image, what are we saying we believe about God? If we're willing to attack and insult and hate someone created in God's image, what are we saying? Jesus says in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our neighbor is everyone. Everyone we come in contact with is our neighbor. The people we like, the people we don't like, the people that like us, the people that don't like us. Those are the people that fall under love your neighbor as yourself. Well, back to the bread. After you've kneaded the bread, you then set it on the counter and you don't do anything. You just look at your new creation and it starts to rise, it starts to expand. The yeast is still doing its thing and putting off bubbles and that's what gives the bread its height and its fluffiness. And likewise, when we take our anger and we have that dough of anger, we should not set it on the counter. We should throw it in the trash can, take it out to the trash can. We should not leave the dough of anger sitting on the counter. But we often do. We let the dough sit and get unresolved and we go back to it, and we keep going and checking on it, and we watch it, and we look to see what's happening, and the anger in our hearts starts to grow. Anger that is left unresolved continues to grow unless we deal with it. Let's look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. So up until this point, if you look at verses uh, 21 through 22, Jesus is saying whoever and everyone. He's using kind of this indirect person. And then in verse 23, he switches. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother, and he, he then narrows it down like he does to the people that are right there in front of them. This isn't whole group teaching. Now this is for you. 
If you remember that your brother has something against you, then you should go and deal with it. This picture of leaving your gift at the altar, again, would have been very common to the Jewish people. They would take a, an offering to God, and you can imagine a man carrying his gift, and he enters into Jerusalem, and he walks toward the temple, and he ascends the stairs into the temple, and first he sees the court of the Gentiles, all of the non-Jewish people. This is where they're allowed to go. So he carries his offering through the next gate, and he's into the court of women. This is as far as the women were allowed to go. And then he sees another gate, and he goes through this big gate, and now he's in the court of men, the court of Israel. To get here, you have to be ceremonially clean. So this man has not touched anything unclean. He has not made himself unclean. And here he's walking through and he sees this giant gate called Nicanor. It's huge and it's wide and it's overlaid with gold. And he walks through this gate carrying his offering to God. And there right before him is a giant bowl called the brazen altar. To the side of the brazen altar are all of the offerings and sacrifices that the people are bringing. And so here this man comes with his offering. Just beyond the brazen altar, he can see the holy place where God is said to reside, the most beautiful part of the temple that God gave the exact dimensions for all of this and made it perfect how he wanted. And here this man stands before the brazen altar seeing the holy place. And at that time, he's like, oh, man, I just remembered my goat got into my neighbor's garden last week, and my goat ate my neighbor's beans, and my wife talked to his wife, and he's really mad at me. And so the man sets down his offering, walks out of the court of men, out of the court of women, out of the court of Gentiles, down the steps, over the hills and valleys, and goes all the way home and knocks on his neighbor's door and says, Hey, I'm really sorry about my gate that got in, or my goat that got into your garden. Uh, you know, I, I got beans growing, and when they come and I get all my beans, I'll bring you some as an apology. Will you forgive me? And the guy's like, yeah, sure, no problem. So then he goes all the way back and goes all the way back to get his offering to give it to God. The point Jesus is saying is, this is almost ridiculous. But Jesus is saying, nobody cares about your gift to God if you're not obeying if you don't obey what God has said, don't try to bring God gifts. If you won't be reconciled with your neighbor, if you don't care about your neighbor, if you're angry with your neighbor, then don't bring gifts to God. Don't come with good works and good offerings having not even obeyed what God has said. The relationships are more important than the gifts. The relationship this man had with his neighbor about something that may or may not have even mattered is more important than the gift he brought to God. God would rather him fix the relationship than offer a hypocritical gift. This is not something new. God has been teaching this to his people for thousands of years. In 1 Samuel 15, you might remember Saul, King Saul, the king of Israel, was told by God, go and kill all of the Amalekites. These were wicked people. They had attacked Israel. They had killed women and children. They had burned their fields just so they could watch them starve. These were wicked people from the beginning that God did not want around. 
And so God tells Saul, go and kill them all. He literally says, destroy everything. So Saul goes and Saul fights the Amalekites and he wins the battle, but he disobeys God. So God sends the prophet Samuel and tells Saul, what are you doing, Saul? Saul says, well, I killed the Amalekites just like God said, and I obeyed God. Samuel says, but who's that? Did you kill everybody? And Saul says, well, that's the king. I brought him back. So Saul again, but I obeyed God. Samuel leans in. He's like, really, Saul? Did you really obey God? Yes, I obeyed exactly what God said. Well, what's all this sheep and goats that I hear then? Why do I hear sheep and goats if you killed them all? Well, I didn't kill all the sheep and goats. I brought them to God. I didn't obey God because I did a better thing for God. I didn't obey because I knew better what God needed, and so I did what God should have asked for. It's ridiculous that we would think that disobeying God and not doing what God said is better than doing what God said, regardless of how we feel. So Samuel then gives Saul, who the now infamous Saul, the words that you're familiar with. To obey is better than sacrifice. And Samuel tells Saul, you're done. Saul can't take it, and he reaches out and he grabs on to Samuel's clothes. And he's holding Samuel, and Samuel pulls away and he rips his shirt. And Saul holds the ripped piece of cloth in his hand. And Samuel, the prophet, tells him, just like you have ripped my shirt, God will rip this kingdom out of your hand. Because Saul would not obey God. Our obedience to God is more important than our gifts, more important than our sacrifice, more important than our good works. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and convicts us of wrongdoing and brings guilt and shame upon us, we can't ignore it. We can't reject it. We can't neglect it. We have to accept that we've done wrong. We need to restore our relationships. We need to reconcile with one another. As Christians, though, we often like to rationalize. We like to explain away the things that we don't like. We like to, like Saul, give God something different than God asked for, do something different, and explain that I did this because I know better, and I, I think this is a good idea. But as followers of Jesus, we have to just say, these are his words. Like it or not, take it or leave it, this is what he said, this is what I do. Understanding it, not understanding it, his words are there that we might obey them. But our heart doesn't want to do that. Our heart wants to say, I don't want to be reconciled because that person is wrong. I don't want to take the first step because they wronged me. Or I would be reconciled if only that person would. Or I would go to them if first they would. And instead of saying, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled, 
we want to say that's for someone else. If that person would read this and then come and be reconciled, all would be well. So if to obey is better than sacrifice, have you owned your own sin with others? Are there relationships that you need to fix? Are there things that you've done or said to other people that need to be apologized for? Are there people that need to be forgiven? Go and be reconciled. It's better to leave now and go and be reconciled than it is to sit here. Go call someone. Go drive to their house. Go call your mom. Go say, hey, I'm sorry. Leave your gift and go and be reconciled. Now, Jesus is talking about the relationships that we have with one another, that we must be reconciled. One of the main reasons that Jesus wants this picture of reconciliation and this picture of restoration and relationships that are restored and good is because that's what God did for us. We were irreconcilable to God. We were sinners. Just like Jesus is saying, our sin in our hearts, the things that we think about someone else, the hatred that we have in our heart, separates us from God. We have sinned and therefore are separated from God. Our relationship is broken and needs to be restored. And so God, knowing that we are sinners and knowing that we need a reconciled relationship with him, sent Jesus. Jesus said, all of those sins, all of that anger, all of that hatred, all of that murder, all of those things that you've done that separated you from God deserve punishment. They deserve judgment. They deserve the Sanhedrin. They deserve Gehenna. But I'll pay for all of that if you'll be reconciled to God. If you will go through Jesus to God, then your relationship with God will be reconciled. And in the same way, go and leave your altar and be reconciled. It's a now thing. It's a don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. To go and be reconciled to God is now. We don't know how long we have. We like to think we'll live and live and live. And we don't want to think about when we'll die. But we will. And it's too late to be reconciled to God. You now stand before the judgment. That's what the next two verses talk about is do it now and do it quickly. Be reconciled today. Jesus offers to care for and take all of those sins that we've done and pay for them so that we are free from our burden of sin, that we are free from the punishment that we deserve because Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father. Well, the final step in baking bread is to put it in the oven, add some heat, and the bread finishes rising and it starts to bake. It's hard, it's settled. You can take it out and it maintains what it is. Our anger takes its final form, usually in heat. And some sort of heat applied to our anger, it grows as much as it can. If you add a little heat, anger comes out of the heart and into the mouth. Anger comes out of the heart and into the hands. 
But the process of anger started way back when we started to add ingredients and we started to mix them together and we started to let the sin activate. We started to let the sin consume our thoughts. We started to let it rise and we started to let it grow. And Jesus is saying, put it away. Way back there, now, put it all away and get rid of all of it. The sin doesn't start in the hands. Do not murder. That's not where it starts. It starts in the heart and then it comes out of the hands. Let's look at the last two verses, verse 25. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Now this is not a teaching about salvation. This isn't a, a grand spiritual allegory. It's just straightforward. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't reconcile, if you don't figure these things out before they grow out of control, once they've grown out of control, you're in court, a judge gives a verdict, and it's done. If you're wrong, you go to jail, you pay the penalty, you pay all of the, the consequences for what's happened. And if unresolved and if left to grow, they get so bad that eventually someone steps in. Eventually, the worst happens because of the anger that started in our heart. And you probably have situations or have had situations like this. You can usually define them by saying, I don't even remember what we were fighting about. I don't even remember why I don't like that person. I know I don't like them, but I don't even remember why we've been fighting for so long that the original problem is lost to me. That's unresolved. That needs to be resolved. That's what Jesus is talking about is coming to your adversary before it gets so far down the road and trying to reconcile. Unreconciled relationships destroy and continue to destroy. Because once we let unreconciled relationships begin to destroy, it's easy to let them destroy other relationships. We have to stop and be reconciled. My wife was driving my parents' car probably 10 years ago, and she was behind a, a semi-truck in town, and the semi-truck stopped at a stop sign, and then she pulled up and stopped behind him. And then the truck driver realized he was supposed to turn, and so he started to back up and just backed right into her. She tried to back up, but he just hit reverse and backed right into her, and it kind of smashed the bumper and put a big hole in it. And so the driver, you know, puts it in park and gets out. He's real apologetic and sorry. And it's like, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm a truck driver, and I, I really can't have points on my record. I'll lose my license if I get too many points. Can we just take care of this? Can I give you cash for whatever it would take to replace the bumper and, you know, not have to call my insurance company and get points on my record? I'd rather just pay for whatever damage you have. So Mary Jo called my parents, and they were like, yeah, that's fine. So the guy paid whatever the agreed upon amount was, and it was reconciled. It was over and it was done as quick as it started. When we are the people that have done wrong, or when we are the people that have been wronged, seeking quick restoration is what Jesus is teaching us. 
seeking to be reconciled before it gets out of control, before things grow and grow and grow. Jesus here is teaching in this passage that all parts of anger are sin. Murder is sin, obviously, that's what he starts with. But so are our angry thoughts and our angry words and our angry gossip and our angry brooding and our verbal attacks. That whole process of anger from heart to hands needs to be put away. And since sin starts in the heart, we must guard our hearts and teach our hearts and train our hearts to reject the sin of anger. We can't let our minds and hearts just run wild and feel and act in whatever way they deem best because our hearts are deceitful and wicked. But we can trust God, not our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, as we seek to honor you with our actions, with our thoughts, even with the intentions of our hearts, Lord, we pray that you would see through our lies to ourselves, our reasons that we can't be reconciled. Lord, may we not justify our thoughts of anger, the intentions of our heart, but Lord, may you see through all of that and convict us through the Holy Spirit of where we are wrong, how we might seek to be reconciled, how we might seek to restore. And Lord, may our good works not be piled on top of a broken relationship. Lord, you see through all of those good works right down to the broken relationships. May we fix the relationships and then pile on the good works that are done in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.